Welcome to the Recession Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast. Join your host, Sam Newell, as he educates you on how to make profitable, low-risk real estate investments that will cash flow through any economy. Hear interviews with the top real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the country to find out what they've learned and implemented since the 2008 recession. With over 10 years in real estate investing, it has become Sam's goal to help others invest for double-digit returns, but to also stay safe and not get caught in the next downturn. Tune in and become recession-proof. All right. Ed Kaminsky, thanks so much for being on my podcast, man. I appreciate it. Hey, Sam. Thanks. Good to see you. Yeah, yeah. Good to see you. I'm excited to have you on. I think last time we talked, we were in Park City, Utah, and it was a ski trip right before coronavirus, right? Yeah, it was right at the beginning. They kicked us out of the, uh, the hotel and the ski slopes that day. Crazy, crazy, man. Well, hey, I really appreciate you getting on. Um, a little bit of background for our listeners. When I got into real estate in 2010, um, I started with Mike Ferry Coaching, and and you know you've been a top uh, producer for a long time, and and you're part of that Mike Ferry Coaching network. And um, I had this recorded listing presentation by Ed Kaminsky that I listened to every day on my way to my appointments. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you're great, man. You've been doing it for a long time. You've been doing it at a high level for a long time, and I'm excited to talk to you a little bit more about that, but let's go back to uh, where you grew up, what you were doing in high school, and did you ever think you'd be a top producing realtor? Well, it's a good question. Um, I guess sometimes it's fun to go back there. Um, so I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, pretty meager beginnings, to be honest with you. Uh, you know, we were fairly, you know, I guess you could use the word poor, but I, I probably didn't know how poor, but... Okay. You know, you wore your brother's hand-me-downs, and if you had holes in your socks, you you sewed the holes. You didn't, mm -hmm. you didn't get new socks; you just sold the holes that were there. And it's kind of how I grew up. And I was, I knew when I was young that I didn't like not being able to buy something that I wanted. And it was a very young age, you know, back in those days, that I wanted to figure out how to get money. I didn't have any money, right? I wanted money. So uh, my first sales job was at the age of seven. Nice. So I went back a little further than, than high school, but I, I remember it like it was yesterday and I was driving my bike around and I saw this warehouse and these guys throwing out these boxes and I'm seeing stickers coming out of the boxes. I'm like, all kids love stickers, right? So yeah. I waited for them to go back in the warehouse and I rode my bike over there and they're boxes of brand new stickers in the garbage hmm. and they were big decals they said kib on them and then right below it said cash is best so then i was thinking hmm, kib isn't cash spelled with c maybe they misspelled them so they threw them out whatever yeah i just i grabbed the box and wrote them home and i literally started selling them in class the next day wow and i was starting to sell them one at a time and then I realized if I sell them in bulk, I could, you know, I get dollar bills instead of nickels, right? So yeah. I started selling them in bulk. And I started seeing stickers, decals on cars all over town. I and mean, it became a big hit. Like people, I don't think people knew what they were. All I knew was I was selling them. <laughs> but so I got my first taste of money and I got my first business lesson too, because the next day at school I brought them again because I thought this is great. Yeah. And I sold a bunch of stickers uh, right before class started. 
and the teacher came in and saw the money on my table and said, Ed, give that money back. I said, okay. And she goes, and they get to keep the stickers. So that was my first business lesson. But to speed up the story, in high school, my goal was to really just follow my dad's footsteps and do whatever he was doing. The, the one issue with that was he did change his career every couple of years. Oh, wow. So at one point I was going to be a carpet layer. Uh, the next year I was going to be putting on uh, plastic roofs. Mm-hmm. Um, then I was going to be a termite guy. And then I was going to be in the jewelry business. So yeah, when wow. I was 18, that's what he was in. So I actually flew to California to go to the GIA, the Gemological Institute of America, and got my degree in gemology in California. And I actually met my wife there when I was 18. And I said, let's go to Texas. My dad's there. He's in the jewelry business and we'll become rich, famous jewelers. (laughs) And so we got there, drove to Texas. By the time I got to Houston, he was already out of the jewelry business. Oh, no. (laughs) So... Um, I got a job and a couple years later we decided I had my new baby daughter, Tina, some of you know, was nine months old. Uh-huh. I was 21 and we decided to head to California uh, just because we liked it. We remember liking California. Yeah. Uh, so we came to California, got it. I they didn't have the internet then. So I just went to the library in Houston and got know two big those big yellow pages mm-hmm. and I cut out every single jewelry store that was in there and sent a resume I sent like 300 resumes out got a bunch of interviews got a job and went in that business oh wow you know I was making you know uh, you know decent wages you know but no not enough money to buy a house not enough money to you know really move ahead in life and and I knew I wanted that next level whatever that mm-hmm. was so I watched real estate courses online. Online? Wait, what year was this? Was, not it, video, was it VHS? Late night TV, sorry. <laughs> this was uh, in the 80s. It was in okay. the 80s. There was no online, it was TV. So I ordered a course, a real estate course, and went to these courses. Actually, it was a 12-week course, something like that, and I got a real estate license. Cool. And then right after I got the license, I started getting job offers in the mail. Offer me a job. And I didn't even send out resumes. I didn't ask for a job. Wow. And I said, This I, I must be really good because they're already <laughs> offering me a job and I didn't even apply. Yeah. So I felt pretty special. So I started talking to some of my new bosses that were hiring, and they all said the same thing. Yeah, you can come here, just write me a check. I was like, Well, this is odd. I yeah. thought I get the check. <laughs> so yeah. I didn't really understand the real estate business at the time. But eventually I chose one of those offices, went to work, and that's where I started my habits, my early habits of grinding out, you know, three hours a day of business production calls in the morning. Because mm-hmm. in the morning, I'd go to the real estate office at nine o'clock. I'd have to be in the jewelry store at one. So from nine to twelve, I've actually door knocked uh, oh, wow. in neighborhoods. And then one o'clock went the jewelry business and that, and that was retail it closed at 9 PM. So nine o'clock we locked up all the jewelry, nine 30, I'm out of there. I go home in the days I worked in jewelry at 9 AM. I would come to the real estate office at six. I'd have dinner at five, 
go to the real estate office at six and I'd cold call from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. and just call people. Wow. wow. And I sold a house. Uh, I remember it was December 1987 when it closed. <laughs> cool. It was for $3,000. And the house I, was 3000 The The commission check. Okay, the commission. Okay. Making sure. Like, uh, were, was that a recession <laughs> I missed or something? Or? Okay. <laughs> So I got a $3,000 check there. I got a $3,000 commission check in the jewelry business. So I had six grand and I determined nice. I could live about four or five months off of that. So I quit my job, went full-time in real estate. And so that's when I really started full-time was January, 1988. I sold 17 homes my first year, tripled my income that I was making in the jewelry business that year. And from that point on, I just figured out how to ladder up each and every year, find ways to improve myself. That's awesome, man. Yeah. So, so it started with you growing up in Cleveland. You liked money. You didn't have it. You wanted to figure out how to make it. So you sold stickers that you found in a dumpster, which is yeah. awesome. <laughs> I sold, uh, I think when I was eight, I was knocking my neighbor's doors, selling them like snacks or something. And I made a bunch of money doing that. So it was a similar story there, which I love. I grew up poor. I grew up in a duplex and uh, my bedroom walls were made out of cardboard. So cool, cool, similar stories. But, but what's interesting is um, you sold 17 homes your first year. I sold 17 homes my first year as well. (laughs) But I had an extensive sales background. I was a Mormon missionary for two years in Peru, you know, preaching Jesus for two years. And then to pay for college, I knocked doors in the summers. So I did cold calling for four years, basically selling pest control before I ever got into real estate. So I will say I did have a good sales background. When I was in the okay. jewelry business, I had, you know, six, seven years of jewelry sales under my belt and okay. salespeople. Even in my first job, they made me manager at 19 years old and I had to train the salespeople. So I just read books. I listened to Tommy Hopkins. I remember Brian Tracy, all these guys. So I was, I was a self-educated person. I did, in my life, and I, still today, I've always felt a little handicapped for not being able to afford to go to college. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, I'm going to educate myself. I've been a voracious reader, listen to Audible now, you know, all the time. So I'm just constantly educating myself, and I don't stop, you know, and that's kind of been one of my habits. Well, I love it, man. There's plenty of poor and poor-minded people that have college degrees. Yeah. I think, I think that's a great difference. You know, you have a a desire to make money, produce, and also to educate yourself. And, and I think that's as far as real estate investing goes, because that's what I do the podcast on mostly, but as far also as just business in general, life in general, if you have an attitude of being successful and also educating yourself and applying that, I mean, applying that would be you cold calling three hours a day or knocking three hours a day while working another job. That's awesome, man. I mean, that's, that's hard. A lot of people don't realize how hard cold calling and, you know, producing new business every single day is. And tell me about that. Cause that's a habit that if, if someone was getting into real estate, I would say, if you could just do one thing, spend three hours a day finding new business, most people won't do it. Well, I, I explain to people what the real estate business is, but I usually ask them the question first. You know, people come in looking for a job and they may be new. They may have been in the business for a while. And I ask them the same question every time. What is the real estate business? Describe it in a sentence or two. 
And, you know, a lot of people today that are watching million dollar listing and these TV shows and people driving fancy cars and, you know, going out to lunch and having a glass of wine and signing contracts and cashing big checks <laughs> and showing fancy houses and think that's the real estate business. Right. Um, those are certainly elements that happen, but I always get a variety of answers. And, and really what I say, the real estate business is one thing and one thing only. It is finding somebody who wants to buy or sell a home and then convince them to work with you. Yeah. That's it. Once yeah. you realize that is the real estate business and that is your daily focus, your job can create a lot of success for you. Absolutely. That, that's the only thing you need to do. Just find someone that needs to buy or sell every single day. I love yeah. it. So, so you went from jewelry, selling jewelry. You got a nice big commission check, both in real estate and in jewelry at the same time as a jeweler. You quit your job. And so that was January 1988. January 88. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. And when did you get into Mike Ferry coaching? I'm curious. Um, I wasn't in the office probably a, a week or two, and I was opening drawers, honestly. No one was ever around. I, I, I couldn't understand where people were because six o'clock when I'd come in, mm -hmm. maybe one guy straggling around, and he'd leave. And I'm thinking, the store's open until nine o'clock. I mean, where, where's everybody going? Because I, I had this mentality that's, that business turned off at 9 p.m. Got it. It's retail. Yeah. So that's when we were done working. So I would wander through the office once in a while and just going through drawers, just trying to figure out what the hell to do. And so I opened a drawer one day and I saw a set of cassette tapes and said Mike Ferry on it. It was a little package with two tapes. So nice. I was pretty new to business. I just grabbed them and put them in my car and started playing them. Okay. So for those of those that are listening to this, what is a cassette tape? <laughs> those millennials that are listening to this, what is a cassette tape exactly? Is it similar to a CD? <laughs> cassette tape is a magnet <laughs> that has words on it. <laughs> yeah, pre-CDs. So you found the MFO uh, tapes and you started playing them. That's awesome, man. I started playing them and that, and that kind of clued me in on what to do. You know, I'm like everybody, you know, I was, you had a manager and, and some suggestions of what to do. And I would sometimes defy his suggestions like he said you go go door knocking go knock all these blocks and don't come back for two hours i remember the first day i went door knocking I knocked on the door and i said do you want to sell your house and he said yes no way <laughs> yeah <laughs> i got my car I drove right back to the office and he's like, what are you doing back already i said he wants to sell his house he goes you're supposed <laughs> to keep knocking so I said, no, no, I'm working on this deal. Yeah. I swear, I don't think that guy ever sold his house to this day. Oh, no. <laughs> I made a mistake. I learned, you know, so you learn along the way. But yep. no, the tapes gave me a lot of clues. But back then, again, I wanted to learn. So I went and saw Mike and I saw uh, Floyd Wickman. I saw Brian Tracy. I saw Tommy Hopkins. I mean, anybody's coming to town, I'm going to go see them. And nice. there was a point pretty early on where... I started recognizing Mike's message connected with me more. He had a, a business sense about him that um, I really liked. And so I stuck with him on that path and I'm still there. That's awesome, man. That's so cool. 
so um, I had a similar, not not super similar, but I started a brokerage and um, it was actually the lady that sold me my first flip. I got my license after I bought my first flip and uh, I went to work with her for her. I did one sale in six months and I'm like, yeah, I, I can't feed my family. I'm, I'm going to have to go back to knocking doors, selling pest control at this rate. So I went and interviewed and it happened to be a Mike Ferry, a broker that promotes Mike Ferry. And I said, you know, I just need some scripts. You know, it'd be great if someone had already figured that out for me. Like there's got to be some high producing realtors that have written down scripts and a business plan. And I swear my broker's like trying not to crack a smile because you don't get a recruit like that very often that wants scripts and wants a schedule. And he slaps down the Mike Ferry 90 day production plan, which I can't find it anymore. I don't think he has it on his website. And that's when I did 16 homes in my next six months. So 17 deals in my first year, but 16 in the, the last six months of the year yeah. following the Mike Ferry system. And I did the same thing, knocking doors, cold calling at night and just figured it out. Congratulations. That's yeah. awesome. well, well, and, and so I, I promote Mike Ferry a lot. He doesn't pay me to. I just know you and me and a bunch of our friends are very, very successful. Thanks to a lot of principles and guidance and coaching from him. So unabashedly, I'll promote him and I won't get paid to do it. But I think anybody wanting to do well in real estate needs to check out Mike Ferry. So, so, so you did 17 deals. Yep. You said you started, you know, gaining momentum. You did better um, from there on, but you added some different things to your business. I know you were in Manhattan beach doing luxury homes, at least when, when I started listening to your presentation, where else did your real estate business evolve and what have you done to really, well, when I thought producer. Yeah. Uh, when I started, I was, I had enough confidence with some internal sales skills that I learned in the sales floor in the jewelry business. I was fortunate enough to work on a really competitive sales floor. A bunch of young guys and women that were just wanting to be the leader in the store, right? Or the leading store in the chain. And so I was around competition at a young age. And I, and when you're 18 and 20 and 22 and 24 years old, you're, you're still moldable, honestly, yeah. when it comes to business. So I was taught to, to just fight, right? So that never went away. And, and that could have been in born, you know, may not have anything to do with the, that store. But what I had was enough confidence that I, I knew something about selling. Mm -hmm. I did not have enough confidence to think I knew enough about real estate to get in front of high-end clients and feel like I was the guy. Um, yeah. I remember my first listing appointment went horribly. I had some book from Century 21 and started flipping pages. And he goes, just tell me how much my house is worth and what are you <laughs> going to get for it? I'm like, well, there's no page in the book for that. <laughs> so anyways, I got beat up out there. So I learned when I went to a more affordable neighborhood instead of where my office was, I felt more confident. I felt more on level. I was dealing with the so-called poor people of LA, right? The ones that can only afford $150,000 houses. And so I had this sense of comfort there. And so I said, you know what? I'm, I'm good here. I'm just going to figure out how can I do 50 of those a year? Okay. And that's all I cared about. Just going to get to my 50 sales a year. It seemed like a, a, a number that was, was, was achieved by the leaders in the real estate business. And if they could do it, I could do it. So I'll do it over here. I don't care. 
And so that's where I focused. I focused on that, that price point of ended up being an average price, about 180 grand back in those days. Interesting. So, so you felt more comfortable in a little bit lower end. And and I think that's pretty natural. And and I did the same thing. My first broker actually told me, she goes, I I don't sell homes over 300,000 because rich people are dishonest. (laughs) And I thought, well, first of all, 300,000 doesn't mean you're rich. I mean, right. And I don't agree with that. But I felt a huge amount of just naturally, just like you, I felt way more comfortable with lower end through my Mike Ferry coach after, you know, I was gaining momentum and, and selling more and more homes. I realized, you know, 3% of a half a million is the same amount of time spent for getting 3% of 180,000. So we worked on moving my price point up. And now, you know, it's, it's interesting that I, I don't know why I ever felt intimidated, but, but tell me how you got over that and, and what the next step was for you. Um, I've had moments in my career, even as recent as uh, two weeks ago, where I got mad, like mad, mad in a, in a, in a, in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Okay. When I get this mad, I make changes. I make changes nice. for the better. And so literally it was the end of a year. I don't remember what year it was, to be honest with you. And I'm looking at the sales board my office is in Manhattan Beach, a very expensive area. Mm-hmm. And all my sales in, are in those around here, Gardena, Hawthorne, Lawndale, Carson. And then I, I'm seeing other agents with listings in Manhattan Beach. And yeah. I said, I said, that's it. <laughs> I'm done. Yeah. I am, I'm, I'm moving here. I was already there, but I'm mentally, yeah. I'm moving here. I'm out of that neighborhood. I'm going to work here. And so it was that moment. It was really an instant, whether it came out of coming back from Mike Ferry seminar and seeing people succeed at higher numbers or seeing other salespeople in the office or, or agents I know that were not as committed and working hard as I was that were succeeding in some of those levels. I knew I could beat them. I just said, I wasn't going to do it anymore. And I said, that's it. I'm not calling those areas anymore. Awesome. If it came to me, I would take it, but I just literally stopped calling, stopped calling the expired, the for sale by owners, door knocking, everything I was doing, and just shut it off and headed west. Now, I didn't go fully west. I went to Redondo Beach and okay. I didn't hit the water yet. And, and then I did that a couple of times. I did that like, okay, there's really expensive homes on the beach. Yeah. <laughs> so... Over time, it took me some time, a slow learner, I guess, that I was the best agent that anybody could hire in that market. And I felt like I was doing a disservice to the community for not going out there and doing my job and talking to these people. So I had all the confidence in the world. I really believed, still continue to believe today, that I'll work harder, smarter, longer, be there for my clients better than any agent in my town. I apologize if there's an agent listening, but it's what I believe. Yeah. So that that's what happened. And so I've had those moments in my career where I've gotten angry and mad and said, I'm going to take this level jump and I'm going to do it right now. And I change everything. I love it. I love it, man. So, so maybe you were at a place of complacency and you realized it or 
you were at just at a spot that maybe you weren't as happy about and you changed it, which is huge. And, but something you said was interesting. You, you knew you were the best. You knew you were going to do a great job that you worked your butt off. And so that's, what's got you all the new business, right? Well, no, you probably had to go out and work your butt off in that new area. So that's what I feel like a lot of new agents, they, they say, Hey, I'm good. And they, they talk to a few people and, and they wonder why business isn't coming to them. So business isn't just going to come to you. Maybe it does now because you know, you've been doing it quite a while, but, um, it doesn't come to me, but if you're watching and you want to do business, I would answer your <laughs> call right now. So do call meeting. <laughs> Perfect. I'll put your phone number in the show notes and we'll say it at the end. But, but I mean, you're out there looking for business every single day because that's what a good realtor does. If you have listings, you should be looking for business every single day to sell those listings. You should be getting more listings to bring in more buyers to sell those listings. And you know, it's, it's taken a, it's taken a, a, a massive shift in, in how I think about business because for the longest time I couldn't help, but think about me, right? Uh-huh. How am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to f- support my family? How am I going to achieve my goals? Um, and certainly I still think of those things. But over time, it's become a, just this massive commitment to my clients. And I, and I mean that sincerely, right? Mm-hmm. So if I have buyers that are like anxious to find a home, I feel it's like my job, I got to go find a seller that has that house. Yeah. Right. And if I've committed to a seller to get their home sold, I got to go find a buyer to, to buy their home. It's just this personal commitment level I have to my clients that has kind of obsessed my body. Honestly, I don't even know how to describe it, but it's no longer about trying to make money and anything else. It's just about meeting the expectations that I've, I know my clients have, I say, I'm going to do the best job. I better go do it. So, and I think high producing realtors that when they understand how the business really works, that's what they do. And it drives me nuts because you get all these people jumping in the real estate business and they say, well, Hey, you know, I, I'm your aunt, I'm your uncle, I'm your brother. I can throw it on the MLS just like Ed can. Yeah. And the difference is you're out there beating down, beating up doors or knocking doors, you know, hitting the phones every single day, looking for buyers and sellers. And, and there's a huge amount of business and a huge advantage to your clients that will happen because of that. And so real estate in itself is not throwing a house on the MLS. It's having the confidence to know I work my butt off and I'm going to be out there doing deals for my clients. And, um, I'm the same with my way with my investors. I look every day for deals and we make a lot of deals happen that, you know, it was on the market, you know, and I'm sure you've had this happen to you where there was a house on the market, you took a buyer to it and they would have never found it without you. And, and it happens all the time, but it doesn't happen if you're the realtor that sits and waits for business to come to you or throws a listing on the MLS. And so for me, I always want to point out there's a huge difference between someone like you, Ed, that's going out and working every day to produce business and a listing agent that just throws something on the market or a buyer's agent that just sends you the MLS. Um, yeah, I think communication styles have changed. Uh, platforms have changed, right? From texting mm-hmm. and emails and everything else. So I grew up using the phone and connecting with people and discussing what's important about a neighborhood or a house and, and all those details. So I think it's been ingrained to me that you just have to pick up the phone and talk to people. 
you can't text your way into the business. Now I know yeah. there's some 20 year old geniuses out there that are starting these tech companies and learn how to make a billion dollars on Tuesday. I'm not that guy. I haven't figured out that platform, but for this business, I think the consumers want to hear from experts. They want to know that you know what's going on in the marketplace, how to maximize price, how to find the right house in the right place, the right way and negotiate the deal. So, right. Real estate is too dynamic. There, there's too many nuances. There's too many different scenarios that could happen. Every buyer's different. Every seller's different, and they need a human being. You can't like yourself on Facebook to a into a listing. Actually, I think I've gotten one listing on Facebook. So you know, maybe you can, but but um, not consistently. So so yeah, human communication is still the best way to really serve your clients. But tell me about growing your business. Um, you know. I was under the impression as a new realtor following the Mike Ferry system that, you know, I could just do this by cold calling. I'm going to cold call four hours a day and I didn't, didn't network. I didn't grow my sphere of influence. I just wanted to cold call because that was what I could do. And I didn't love networking. I had a confidence issue and, and some self-belief issues, but have you worked in networking or what's some other things that have worked really well for you? Well, over time, yes, I've moved into, Centers of influence, I guess, as we call it, right? These are people that you've met along your travels and they might be connectors that know a lot of people and you've worked with them and you've earned their respect and trust and they refer you out. But the key with connectors is you, you do have to earn their trust, number one. And number two, you still have to ask for the damn business. They just, yep. it's, they don't think of you. They're not driving around all day thinking, I got to get at a deal today. <laughs> yep. what they do <laughs> but people are busy they're busy listen you know it, it, and it's understandable so you have to stay connected and I've also learned that I've got to I got to feed my sphere as well like how can I help them mm -hmm. so when I come from contribution and find ways to help them whether it's sending them clients or giving them opportunities of platforms like you've created here today mm -hmm. Sam and putting them out there in public view and um, letting them sponsor, uh, you know, my, my events with my clients who already trust and respect me um, and just really just trying to give back to them. And then they, they, they wake up one day when someone says something about real estate and remember, Hey, you should give that a try. So awesome. That, that spirit becomes very important. My past clients become very important part of our, our business growth and I can't help myself but look at all the young guns and the technology that's out there and the different things that they're doing to create um, eyeballs on their websites and platforms and get their phones a ring and figuring out how to do that mm -hmm. uh, but I think it comes from providing proper information education to the consumer base and continuing to find ways to do that that's helpful to them staying top of mind and I don't know there's there's 10 ways there's a hundred ways to do this business honestly I do it the old-fashioned way I grind it out a lot all day all night sure but but at the same time that it may be the old-fashioned way but it's the best way you know actually communicating with people and you know I can get you know I've I've guys actually there's this investor I know he'll get thousands of likes on these posts he does and he has these click funnels and these websites he builds 
And I know for a fact he does no business. He does hardly any business because he's not competent and he's not good at what he does. He's great at the online stuff. He should do marketing for other realtors. But communication <laughs> and, and taking care of people is huge, right? You still got to get the yeah. business. So tell me, um, you work, you've worked with um, a number of different clients. I mean, you're, you're in the LA area. You and I just did a little mini conference. We were supposed to do something live and coronavirus kind of delayed that working with surgeons and, and tell me about that kind of what you're doing there with doctors and surgeons and the healthcare field. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we have a, a division called procure tomorrow, it's procuretomorrow.com. And really the, the design of that company was, was spawned off of what I did for the athlete world and the athlete world. I built, built a company called sports star relocation. Sports Star Relocation is a company that's dedicated to helping athletes when they're drafted or traded and become free agents to their whole relocation process. So selling their existing home, finding them the new home, everything from A to Z in between. So getting their awesome. stuff moved over, helping the family find a new school and babysitters and hairdressers and everything else that goes on because they're, they're yanked from city to city every two or two to four years, right? Right. Um, but I constantly have been running into medical professionals in, in my field and, and, and taking good care of them. And I, I kept discovering uh, with the successful ones, right? They're, the whole medical industry is changing and it's, it's tougher out there for these guys. And, and honestly, right now, I have to say a, a big shout out for, for yeah. all the, the medical workers who've been you know, saving lives and putting their own lives in danger Right. Uh, for us during this, this pandemic or this, when this is being taped, we appreciate you really sincerely. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Thanks. So, but this, this idea was to find ways to, to really solve a lot of problems that they have on the financial wellness side, right? They're typically very good at their job and, but it, it is time consuming. Yeah. Um, and so their, their days are eaten up with their work. What time they have left, they got to deal with their, their families and, and spend time with them. So their financial decisions are based on whatever few minutes they have left. And, right. and I've seen so many of them make decisions that probably weren't best for their financial growth or their financial protection. And so that's what was the whole design of the company to say, hey, let's identify all the options you have, whether it's buying your first home out of residency and how to do it with low down payments and big student loans that you have to deal with, what lenders can help you through that process to getting their, their upgraded home after that once their career takes off. And then more importantly, creating relationships of opportunity to take whatever excess cash and dollars they have to continue to grow it and let it right. sit in the bank almost going negative if they're you know sitting in cash and creating introductions to, to people like you, Sam, and yeah. and the opportunities of these investments that are easy to manage from their perspective because they don't have the time. And how do right. you find people you can actually trust and hand them $100,000 or a million dollars and say, hey, grow this and don't screw it up, right? Right. So obviously there's no guarantees in that world and you can stick it in the stock market and lose and you can put it in real estate and lose. 
but I think we've learned through this pandemic, probably the worst thing that could kill a, an economy uh, that we could ever imagine. Oh yeah. What's coming out alive and well is residential, you know, apartment buildings. Now, yeah, people yeah. are having trouble paying rent, but the reports I'm seeing, you could probably attest to this. We're seeing 94% rent collection, 96% mm-hmm. rent collection in a lot of markets. People still need to live in a home and it just appears to be a, a, a darn safe investment. So we're just identifying ways for them to know about what those are. We're, be, we're, we're really just a, an educational forum for them Got and it. try to guide them into those areas. And if they want to do business with us, we're, we're happy to help them. If not, we're just providing free education. That's awesome, man. And, and so I think the common theme with Ed Kaminsky real estate is take care of people and don't just sell them a house. I mean, with your sports star relocations, with your, your medical professionals, you're saying, what problems do you have? I'm going to take care of, yes, the real estate side, but I'll have an answer for a babysitter, you know, a CPA in a new location or whatever it is. I'm going to make sure you're taking care of the clubs, the, the references that these people need when they relocate or the medical professionals, they don't have time to do the research. You're investing with us and, and you're vetting these investments firsthand to say, hey, you know, we've got our money in this. We, we're 94% occupied this month. We're doing great. So it seems like that's your common theme. And I would argue that's probably what's been a huge contributing factor to your success is really taking care of people's needs and not just selling them a house or not just helping them buy an investment property is, is just pure customer service. I mean, it's the Nordstrom approach, right? You know, you, you say it very eloquently, uh, honestly, Sam. So you said it succinctly. I think it's just become natural for me and it's just, it's how we work, but, uh, but I, I appreciate you recognizing that. And I, I think you're right. I think that is what's allowing us to have the success for our clients that we do. Yeah. Well, well, it's huge. And, and so you, you've identified these issues and on the investment side, that's why I got into big multifamily. I mean, the name of the podcast is Recession Proof. I've been, this has been years in the work. When did you, you know, name it? What's that? When did you name it that? Named it that last year, when I, about last spring, you know, and, and so a couple of years ago, I was selling, you know, I sold like a hundred and something fourplexes and duplexes in 2018. And about 2017, the market started getting crazy. And people were buying stuff I was telling them not to buy. I would say, Ed, don't buy that. It doesn't cash flow. And Ed would buy it anyways. And then he'd call me a month later and say, yeah, you're right. It's not cash flowing. <laughs> and it got worse in 2018. And it got worse in 2019. And, and I wanted to educate people and say, here's how I look at a deal. And here's why I'm telling my clients not to buy these deals. And I'll lose, lose huge commission checks because I'll talk them out of a deal. But it's very important to me that people don't lose money that people don't buy an investment that's bad for them. And what I realized is a lot of investors that are investing now do not have a frame of reference for 2008. They don't understand what happened. They didn't, they didn't see it. They heard that houses got taken back and either they're super risk adverse because they think we're going to have another 2008 or they're uneducated. So um, that's the purpose of this podcast. That's the purpose of our investment group. We're so ultra conservative that we can weather any storm, which we're showing right now. And coronavirus, the silver lining for us is we're looking great. We're, we're looking really smart. Our investments are performing with flying colors and our stress testing is 
is panning out to be overly conservative, but that's what we wanted. But take me back in uh, 2008 in, in Manhattan Beach. What was it like for you guys? And did you see any investors or any maybe home buy, homeowners make mistakes that you know people could use that info to prepare for the next recession? Well, you know, right now, anything previous to now, we're calling BC, right? Before Corona. Yep. <laughs> um, so yeah, 2008 was an interesting time. And I think it's important to understand the difference between 2008 and now first, right? Mm -hmm. um, the next recession, not this one, but the next one could resemble this one or a previous one. So garnering the information and knowledge from, from different ones is important. Right. So most of this is known, but it really, really important to look at it. My belief of what's going to happen in the marketplace differs from others, but that happens in any, any market situation. So we all have different beliefs. Sure. What, what I don't believe right now, subject to new information coming into my hands is that we're going to see any significant crash in residential real estate. Mm -hmm. And I'm basing it off of multiple market declines that I lived through and worked through. So right. uh, 1987, when I started, we were, we were moving up in the business and it stopped in 1989. And certainly in our marketplace, it was heavily due to the, I think it was the cold war. Honestly, we were, we were dealing with, yeah, reduction in aerospace spending mm -hmm. and we were an aerospace community. So we had tens of thousands of people leaving Southern California due to the lack of oh, um, wow. growth in aerospace. Yeah. Now across the rest of the U S I didn't pay attention. I didn't pay attention to anything past my fence. Uh, sure. when I, was new. I didn't know how to. There's no Google back then. Yeah, I guess that's what it was. <laughs> I read the I read the daily paper and that was about it. Yeah. So that market we saw a, a significant decline in, in residential real estate. And then in 2008, when that showed up, I was ready for it. I was ready for the decline because I just felt like I went through the one in the 90s. Yeah. And here's why we lost money in 2008. It was the person who got to make the decision on the sale price of the home. This is really important to understand. Okay. The homes we were selling in 2008 had what we would call negative equity. They right. were upside down. So mm -hmm. you owned a house. It was worth $800,000. But your loan balance was $900,000. Well, in America, great America, the rule is if you can't make your payments, the bank can foreclose. Right. The penalty to you as the borrower for foreclosure is you get to live in the house for four to six months without any payments. And at the end of those four to six months, you have to give the keys to the bank and no money. And they tell you, you don't have to pay them back the difference. Right. So you get free occupancy. You don't have to pay the money back and you don't go to jail. You don't owe the money later. The only thing they tell you is, 
we're not going to give you another loan. Right. And believe me, the last thing you want right then is another loan because your credit's bad. You can't yeah. get a loan. You don't want a loan. You don't want to see a bank for, for, <laughs> for years. You need a break. So that your house is worth 800000 Someone writes an offer on the home. They offer $750,000. And you look at the offer and you say, listen, if I tell them to pay 800000 which is what it's worth, I get nothing. If I sign the seven fifty, I get nothing. Why am I going to counter the offer? Right. I'll sign the seven fifty, send it in to Mr. Bank. Mr. Bank says, "Okay, I continue living here for free for a while until it closes escrow." I go my merry way. Right. The banks made the decision of what price they're going to take. They were giving away homes. Yeah, it's just a fact. Yeah. Now, was there government? Uh, regulations that allowed them to do that and protected the banks and was there insurance for banks? I don't know. That's a bunch of stuff yeah, that happened the, the, the big curtain. <laughs> I didn't get behind the curtain. Yeah. But I do know that the banks said, I'll take any price, whatever you get, we'll take it. And so those were the decision makers who decided what homes would sell for. And so right. prices declined. Guess who's making that decision today? Homeowners. It's homeowners who have equity. It's yep. their life savings. It's their college education for their children. It's how they're going to retire. Do you think they're going to say yes to a 750 offer for a home that's worth 800000 Hell no. No way. No way. There's not no. a chance. And it's so really the sellers point. are not budging on price. And the buyers are trying. It's COVID out there. It's <laughs> Corona. I'm going to just lowball it. It's a good time to buy. I'm going to steal something. Guess what's happening? Nothing. I mean, there might be a few people that lost jobs. I mean, I'm expecting a few of those to pop up, a few good deals, but I'm getting that question too. Hey, you know, we're ready to make lowball offers. And I'm like, good luck. You know? There's always motivated people in the marketplace. You can have an upward rising market on, on in flames going up. Right. There's going to be someone that says, hey, I'll take any price. I just want out. It's a fixer up or whatever. Sure. Those opportunities exist in any market. What we are not seeing is a massive cry to sell. We have right. a story issue across the entire country. Sam, you know a lot of these big guys around town. We're on the phone with them every week. Yeah. From Florida, New York, Vegas, LA, Texas, Colorado. Salt Lake. Oklahoma, <laughs> yeah. Salt Lake. We, we have a 50,000 door housing shortage still in Utah. We haven't been able to catch up for four years. Keep it a quick story. Mm -hmm. What controls value? Supply and demand. Right. End of story. Yeah. The supply is not there and the demand is, you're going to have appreciation. Yeah. If the supply massively increases and demand drops, you can have depreciation. When they remain constant, you have constant value going on. And that's where we're at right now. We do not have an increase in supply. We have a constant demand. We've seen stabilization in pricing right now. Mm -hmm. Multiple offers happening around town. Yeah. Uh, we're not seeing massive activity. Everyone's not rushing out of their house to go buy homes today. We're certainly seeing a slowdown in the amount of activity. But we just don't have the inventory coming to the market to create a problem on pricing yet. Yeah. Could it happen? Sure, it could. Do I think it will? No, I actually don't. And we're seeing the same thing. You know, I was just telling you before we started recording, we had multiple deals, multiple multi-million dollar real estate deals 
either under contract or about to write offers. And that's my next call actually is talk about a $6 million deal in Cincinnati. We're hoping that there might be some price adjustment, but it doesn't really look like there is. I think everyone's just on pause. And so I love the points that you just made. I bought a house in 2010 that for 170, it was a flip sold for 330. And the people didn't care what it sold for. You know, they, they just signed the offer. They didn't, they didn't care. You know, they bought it for 330. They didn't care if the bank lost 20,000 or 120,000. Right. Um, so that's a really, really good point. And we're not seeing all these foreclosures pop up and guess what the government did. The first thing they did is said, we're sending people checks in the mail or I guess wire so that they can pay their rent. And the first time this has ever happened where the bank said, if you have a mortgage, you don't have to make a payment right now. Yeah. Yeah. We'll add it on at the end. I asked the banks 10,000 times in 2008 and 2009. Could you just push the payment out a little bit? Why take away their home? They're happy to stay here. Yeah. No, no. And then they did it this time. So honestly, I think it saved a lot of people's homes. It was a good thing. Yep. Who knows what the long-term effects will be? I'm not a astute economist, but I can just tell you from experience that I'm not seeing blood and water on the residential side. I have concerns for the commercial side. I do think mm-hmm. the small mom and pop retail shops are, are are having a lot of trouble right now. Right. Do what you can to support them in your communities. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but I think we're going to see some some change of vacancy rates in commercial real estate. I think we're going to see some change of use of commercial real estate. Uh, You know what I'm scared of, Ed? I think you're right about commercial. I think a lot of the commercial investors are going to get back into residential and it's going to actually increase pricing on the big residential deals because they're going to see, oh, Sam and Ed's deal in Cincinnati or Michael and Sam's deal, other deal in Cincinnati, 95% occupied through coronavirus. Yeah. While my, my strip mall was, you know, no one paid me because they didn't have any business. The only, <laughs> I don't even want People to, always need a place to live. Yeah. I'm just thinking, I don't even want to think it. I shouldn't say it. I'm going to say it. I'm not going to say it. <laughs> the only thing that would change the need for residential real estate is the disappearance of a lot of people. Yeah. Right? I mean, some massive, horrible thing that would happen to millions of people. We wouldn't need the houses, right? Yeah. So, I mean, zombie apocalypse, that's basically it, right? What's that? It's, it, it would be a zombie apocalypse. That's basically the only thing that would change. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, but yeah, there's people would just have to disappear or mass exodus to some other location. And we... Another planet, right? Yeah. Maybe they go to the moon. <laughs> yeah. So it's not happening. Well, we're running out of time. Um, I wanted to highlight your companies one more time for people because I, I really believe that you're a rock star agent. You take care of people. You have the Nordstrom mentality of taking care of, of your clients. We've got, um, well, I'm going to let you name them off, but how do people get in contact with you and, and what um, different branches of your real estate business do you have? So my known brand is it's sold itzsold.com that's been my website since they had websites out okay um so that's that's where most people find me online um the kaminsky group uh, is my social media name i leave my team to that uh so if you're on facebook or youtube or 
Instagram. I believe it's under the Kaminsky group. Okay. Uh, we talked about procuretomorrow.com, which is our medical division. We talked about sports star relocation, uh, which is our sports division. And I have new things going, but that's enough for, for, for today. Um, <laughs> Got a that, lot going on, man. And you can call me. I say my number, 310. Yeah, say it. 2414 against 310-427-2414. My email is my initials, ek at itsold.com. Ek at itsold.com. Perfect. I'll make sure that's all in the show notes. Thank you. Um, you're in Manhattan Beach, just just reminder, but your relocation company, I mean, you're working with athletes all over the country, right? Not I'm just based LA. in Southern California. We're in Manhattan Beach, Mosa Beach, Redondo Beach, Palos Verdes, and all the surrounding cities is where my core business has always operated, but I've done business in, in almost every major city across the U.S. for different reasons from different divisions of my company. Uh, but that that certainly is our focus with Southern California. Awesome. Awesome. All right, man. Well, I really appreciate you being on. Can't wait to uh, close on this Cincinnati deal we're working on together. And um, if I can help you in any way, just let me know. Would love to refer you some athlete business or some, uh, you know, some of those surgeons here in Utah that I know. So I'll work on that Listen, for you. Just, just for the record, we, we love our athletes and, and surgeons and everything else. But even if it's your, you know, your cousin or your son that's buying a, a $400,000 condo, we covered from A to Z. We've got a great team to take care of anything. We treat everybody exactly the same. doesn't matter what the price is. So perfect. You, Sam sharing and, everything you're doing to educate me and the world on the investment side and trying to make us some protected dollars out there. We appreciate it. Absolutely, man. Love it. Appreciate you being on. And I just thought I've got a mother, a grandmother-in-law with five acres in Yorba Linda. Ah. So um, when she croaks, not to sound too <laughs> <laughs> uh, insensitive about it, but I will, uh, I'll definitely let you know. Cause that's you do have a probate and trust division. So yeah, there yeah. you go. There you go. We'll need to get that sold. It's a cool piece, really cool piece of land as it's a orange and avocado orchard in the middle of Yorba Linda. Just really cool place, you know, awesome. 25 minutes from Disneyland. I think it's surrounded by condos and townhomes Yeah. now, but, but yeah, man, I appreciate you and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks for being on the show. Got it. Thanks, Sam. Appreciate okay. it. Sam.